I would do mica. I went back over my recorded teachings over the last 20 years, and I've never done mica. So mica, of course, was a prophet. He prophesied during the time of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, around 750 to 700 BC. And he goes after both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And during that time, in 722, the northern kingdom got sanded off by the Assyrians. So you'll see references in here to Assyria and so forth like that. And then in 701, the Assyrians came down and stopped short of taking Jerusalem. So they never did take Jerusalem, but they did take a bunch of ancillary cities around Judah. And those will be mentioned in the prophecy. Of course, Micah's big claim to fame is the prediction of the Messiah and that he'll be born in Bethlehem. Other than that, Micah is a pretty standard prophet in the spirit of Isaiah or any of the rest of them. So Micah 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moraseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. So he will talk about the house of Israel. He'll talk about Jacob. And it's sort of sometimes hard to keep track of who he's talking about. Very often in prophecy, he will talk about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And that is pretty clearly the northern and southern kingdoms. When you have the house of Israel, it isn't really clear necessarily whether he's talking about the northern kingdom or he's talking about the entire nation. In the case of Jacob and Israel, it's not necessarily clear. One other small thing, and I haven't actually looked up in this, but just sort of general background. Jacob, you're all familiar with the story, starts off life as Jacob wrestles with the angel and gets his name changed to Israel. In prophecy, the nation is very frequently, interchangeably referred to as either Israel or Jacob. And typically, I don't know that I can say that it's always the case, but very frequently, when he's referred to as Jacob, he's not doing well. When he's referred to as Israel, he is doing well or we're talking about some future redemption. So as you listen to these names, it, sometimes they're significant in context. So anyway, the prophecy of Micah Morseth, which she saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Here, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So... Thing number one is obviously he is not just talking to Israel, he's talking to everybody and using the prophet and Israel as his conduit. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Now, I'm not sure what's going on here. There's a couple of possible interpretations of that. Interpretation number one is throughout the Tanakh, high places are usually where they do pagan idol worship. 
So the idea that God would stride across the earth smashing the high places may be an indication that he is going to come and he is going to do away with all the idolatrous practices of all the nations in the world, to include Israel. The other interpretation of this takes you back to both Sinai and Pentecost. At Sinai, God descended upon the mountaintop in flames, and his voice rolled down the mountain, splitting rocks as it went. And of course, at Pentecost, in the upper room, you had the tongues of fire coming down from the ceilings on the apostles there, which is the symbolic enactment of what happened at Sinai. So I don't know what the prophet means here. Those are the two things that I can see are being referred to. Could be both. The other thing is, clearly, this is end-time stuff, at least at this point, because he hasn't done that. I'm all the way down to verse 5. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Going back to my riff on Jacob and Israel, what I don't know is if Jacob refers to the whole nation and then Israel refers to the northern kingdom. And since he's talking about transgression of Jacob, and he will, as he goes through this, go after the southern kingdom as well as the northern kingdom, I suspect that Jacob is the whole nation and Israel is the northern kingdom, but that's a guess. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Notice here he splits them differently. So now Jacob is referring to Samaria and the high places of Judah being Jerusalem. It's obviously poetic language. Unpacking it is sometimes difficult. And of course, you all know your history and the northern kingdom fell into idolatry before the southern kingdom did. So Israel fell into idolatry before Judah because remember when they split, Jeroboam was the first northern king and he was paranoid that if Israel went back to Jerusalem for all of the feasts, at some point the kingdoms would reunite and he would lose his kingdom. So what he did is he set up golden calves at Bethel and Dan with the idea that people in the northern kingdom would do their worship and sacrifice at those places as opposed to going down to Jerusalem. The other thing he did is he shifted the holy days by a month so they didn't coincide. So the idea here of Samaria being the transgression of Jacob, they were pretty transgressive right from the start. Judah takes a little bit longer, and in fact, Judah will be spared when the Assyrians come down and take out Israel. Verse 6, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. The idea of uncovering foundations, usually a foundation is below the ground. So the idea of uncovering the foundation means that you take the superstructure off and all you can see is where the foundation is in the earth. If you've ever seen pictures of tornadoes and hurricanes, the house is gone and all you've got left is the foundation. So that's what he's talking about there. Verse 7. 
All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. One of the things that, again, you all know, is God regards his covenant with Israel, the whole nation, not the northern kingdom, as a marriage covenant. And so he regards idol worship as an adulterous relationship. I don't remember whether it's in Ezekiel or Jeremiah, but it talks about Israel saying of her lovers, which are foreign nations that worship other gods, you know, I got my riches and I got all that from my lovers. And what God says is, yeah, and I'm going to strip you naked and run you through the street and let everybody look on your nakedness. So it's very much a a marriage kind of surge of images. The idea then of Samaria or the northern kingdom getting the fee of a prostitute, what that's saying is, first off, idol worship, and second off, that she's making unwise alliances with surrounding nations and enriching herself in that process and going after the other gods and and so forth. So God regards all of her wealth as being the fee of a prostitute, not legitimately gained according to God. Verse 8, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. For it has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So the idea of lamenting and wailing and going barefoot and naked is a sign of mourning. So the prophecy that God has spoken through Micah has upset him, obviously. And he will make a lamentation and go naked and so forth as a sign of mourning because of that prophecy. And her wound is incurable, which is to say Samaria's wound is incurable. The northern kingdom's wound is incurable. In fact, they're going to be taken and sanded off by the Assyrians and never heard from again. He also now says, it has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So what he's doing is prophesying the farthest advance of the Assyrian kingdom, which stops at the gates of Jerusalem. All of that is, at this point, prophetic. Now, starting in verse 10, for the rest of the chapter, we're going to get the names of a number of cities. I'm not going to throw them up on the map because their location is not particularly important to what's going on. Their names are, and all of these cities are in Judah. So what they are is outlying fortresses around Judah that are going to be taken by the Assyrians. And as I say, the Assyrian advance finally stops at the gates of Jerusalem, and God then wipes out something like 240,000 of them overnight, just slaughters them. And Sennacherib, who is the commander, or the king, if you will, is driven back to Assyria, and he is killed by his sons, So I'll give you these names as we read them, their meaning, and then you can see how that relates to what's being said about the city. So the style, if you will, is like if a prophet were to say Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, in Philadelphia, love shall run cold. It's that kind of wordplay as we're going through the names of these cities. So tell it on Gath, 
weep not at all. In Beth Laophra, roll yourselves in the dust. So Beth Laophra means city of dust. So in Beth Laophra, roll yourselves in the dust. So you get the flavor of what's being said with these city names as we go on. Gath apparently rhymes in Hebrew with tell as to tell a story. So it's tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Ephra, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. Now, Shafir means fair or beautiful, in nakedness and shame. So we have the whole riff we just did on prostitutes. So Shafir is beautiful or fair, and what's going to happen to her is she's going to be stripped naked and shamed. So pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. Zanan means pointed, or it comes from the word migrate in Hebrew. The root for Zaphon is migrate. So come out would be migrate. The inhabitants of Zaanan do not come out. The lamentations of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. And Beth Ezel is house of narrowing or house of protection. And so Beth Ezel is not going to be a protection. Obviously, if we all spoke Hebrew, this would be easier. Verse 12. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Moroth is Mara, which is bitter. So they're waiting for good, but all they are getting is bitterness. And then disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. And we've already talked about that. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. Apparently Lachish was known for its horses. Lachish means invincible, cannot be conquered. So harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish, which is to say, gird up your loins. It is the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. So the idea here is the chariots that you are going to use for warfare, you will wind up using to try and flee. Verse 14. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moraseth Gath. Moraseth Gath is possession of Gath. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moraseth Gath. The house of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. Achzib means deceit. So the house of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. And I'm not sure when we're talking about Israel here, whether we're talking about the northern kingdom or whether we're talking about the whole nation, because all of this is by way of what's going to happen during the Assyrian invasion. And of course, you had kings both in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the idea that they would depend on Akzib, and it will not be dependable. So I don't know whether it's both of them or just the northern kingdom. Verse 15. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. Merashah is the crest of a hill. So I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Adullam is justice of the people. 
And Adullam, if you remember your history, is one of the places where David fled when he was running away from Saul. So the idea that the kings of Israel will yet again have to run to Adullam, where David ran before he was king, sort of indicates that things have come full circle. The monarchy, if you will, with David starts at Adullam, and now its destruction is going to be at Adullam again. Do with that whatever seems good to you. Verse 16, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourself bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Cutting off hair and so forth is a sign of mourning. And the idea here is that mourning is going to be appropriate because their children are going to go into exile. Chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. This is an indictment of the northern kingdom specifically, The southern kingdom is not far behind. But you all remember in Kings where you had Jezebel and Ahab. And one of the things that Jezebel does is arranges for Ahab to get a vineyard that its owner does not want to sell. So the owner says, this is my patrimony. This is in my inheritance. It's been in my family ever since Joshua. I'm not going to sell it to you. So Jezebel arranges for false witnesses to come against him, accuse him of blasphemy, get him stoned to death, and then her husband takes over the vineyard. So the idea of woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, these are people who have the power to do whatever they want without fear of consequences, and they have become corrupt. So instead of using the power that they have been granted for the reasons it was given to them, which is for the benefit of the nation, what they wind up doing is using that power to enrich themselves and to oppress others. So verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. Full stop here for a minute. Disaster is not a kosher word. The word is also translated in other ones as calamity. Calamity is a better word because disaster is an astrological term. It means the stars are not aligned right. So when you say something is a disaster, what you're saying is bad luck or the stars are aligned against me or something like that, which is not kosher. So... I am quarreling with their translation here. Other translations use calamity, which is a better word. Micah 2.3 Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising calamity, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of calamity. Not just him, the whole family. The whole point is that When you do wrong, it has ramifications beyond just you. And we had Hezekiah, who is delighted that he's got peace in his lifetime because the war is going to come on his descendants. That was where I sort of said, gee, that's not a good attitude. You really want to take care of it yourself if you can. 
So we're all the way down to verse 4. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Unpacking that starting at the end. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. That is measuring land. So you remember when Israel came into the land under Joshua. One of the things they did is cast lots for the land. So the idea of casting lots to get your allotment. Anybody notice the play on words there? To get your allotment of land and then the line is what you use to measure your plot. So the idea here is there will be none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord, which is to say you guys are going into exile and there isn't going to be anybody to handle real estate deals for you. Back up to verse 4. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Now, remember, we started back on this chapter at the beginning. In verse 2, these powerful ones covet fields and seize them. So this whole thing is talking about land. The ones who are taking up a taunt, I believe in context, are the people of the northern kingdom are taking up a taunt against the king who has served them poorly. And because of that, the land in the northern kingdom is being taken away from Israelites and is being given to the people who are going to become the Samaritans. You remember your history, it was the policy of the Assyrian Empire when they conquered a land, they uprooted all the people and put them somewhere else and brought in new people to occupy that land. The idea there being, we're talking about my inheritance, the been in our family since Joshua, and you've got a strong emotional attachment to the land. And so what they do is they break that emotional attachment by taking all the people out and moving them somewhere else and bringing fresh people in who don't have that emotional attachment. It makes them easier to manage. Verse 6, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. One is do not preach. The idea is don't talk of such things. Hey, prophet, knock it off. We've talked about this lots of times. It is, in fact, the case that genuine prophets are able to have God do what they say. It is not always the case that it's something that God has in mind himself. So the poster child for that, of course, is Moses at Korah's Rebellion, where Moses stands in front of the tents of Korah and says, all right, these guys die a normal death, I'm not your man. But if the earth opens up and swallows them, cool. So the earth opens up and swallows them. That is not what God had in mind. So the next day, the people of Israel come before Moses and 
God says, Moses, sit down. You're killing too many of my people. And then we do the business with the rods, where you bring a rod from each tribe and you write the name on it, and Aaron's rod budded and brought forth almonds and so forth. So God validated Moses without killing anybody else. Moses killing all the people he did was not necessarily something God wanted to do. But as a prophet, he has the power to make those things happen. So this idea, hey, prophet, shut up. We don't want you talking about those things. Because what you talk about will come to pass. And in fact, as we've said many times before, being a prophet in Israel was tough duty. Because one of the things that kings would routinely do is they would take a prophet and rough him up and throw him in jail if he gave a bad prophecy. It's based on that understanding of the power of a prophet. So, verse 6, do not preach. Verse 7, should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? So the people are saying, prophet, quit talking about this. The prophet is saying, if you were doing well, my words would do you good. That's what that means. Verse 8, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. My people, in this case, is God's people. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. In other words, they have become bandits. People who pass by in what they think is peace get ripped off. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. This is talking about the Assyrians at this point, because that's what's going to happen. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. And again, he's talking about the northern kingdom. They have become unclean to the extent that they are going to be destroyed. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher of this people. What that is, is a preacher that says what the audience wants to hear. So you would accept a preacher who came in and told you that if you give me 10 bucks, you're going to get a new car. You accept him, but you won't accept a genuine prophet of God. And it's very obvious that the preacher here is talking what people want to hear. Verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. This is then regathering. So what he's done is he has shifted focus from near the Assyrian invasion to far the eventual regathering. And this is fairly typical of prophets. They come in and give their target a really hard time for their behavior, tell them what's going to happen if they don't correct their behavior. They typically don't correct their behavior. And then what they do is prophesy what's going to happen in the far future. What he's saying is, we still have a covenant. The fact that you're going into exile is proof that the covenant is still working. Because when we made the covenant to begin with, I said, if you obey me, if you walk in my ways, things are going to just go really well with you. But if you don't, 
things are going to go really, really bad. So the fact that things are about to go really, really bad is evidence that the covenant is still in force. In other words, you guys have been violating the covenant, and what I'm now letting you know is uh, the covenant is still in force. And the part in the covenant, you remember where it says you're going to go into Remember that part in the covenant? This is what we're going to do now. But the covenant is still in force. So at some future time, I will regather you all and bring you back to your land. Verse 13. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So what he's going to do is he's going to gather all of the people like a flock of sheep. And that flock of sheep is going to go and break through the gate that's imprisoning them. And they're going to go out, and the Lord is going to be at the head of that procession. This I see as millennial kingdom stuff, where Israel is regathered, and the Lord himself, Yeshua, is reigning in Jerusalem. And David is the king. So you have Yeshua is there, David is the king, Yeshua is over him. And so I see that as being that time frame. I mean, it could be dry bones time. The image is similar. And I'm not sure precisely what he's talking about, but it's that kind of thing. (laughs) 